Hello all and welcome back to another episode of the Goddess Project Gay Gods of Greece. Today we're going to be talking about Poseidon, uh, particularly around his lover Pelops. And this story, my friends, has the potential for everything from uh, cannibalism to resurrection to love affairs, to everything. So welcome and hello. First, I'd like to say hello to all my new followers. Um, this is a special series that I'm creating for Pride Month 2023, the Gay Gods of Greece. And I'm going to do a series of these short episodes um, this month and post them maybe a couple times a week. Uh, so we're going to talk about mythology. We're going to talk about uh, heroes, gods, uh, mostly Olympians I think I'm going to pick on, but there's a couple others as well um, that I'm going to be working with. So if you're new to the channel, welcome and thank you so much for subscribing. If this is your first time watching me, I want to tell you that um, these episodes are unedited, so I never chop them up and unscripted. <laughs> <laughs> and totally informal, informal. My name is Carla Ionesco. I'm a PhD. My PhD is in ancient history, particularly ancient Greece and Rome. My area of expertise is the goddess Artemis. And Artemis is coming up very, very soon um, because Artemis has always had this a queer vibe to her. And so I thought that we would have some fun this month. I've been wanting to do a series on um, Greek heroes and gods and the sort of um, queer stories around them. Uh, now, some stories like you've seen, if you have, if you've watched the Amazons already, the Amazon episode, some stories are more implied intimacy and have the sort of complicated um, vibe around them. There's sort of an innuendo around them. Uh, but this story of Poseidon and Pelos is an absolute uh, admission, if I should, if we can say that. Um, there is an absolute love story between Poseidon and Pelos, and so we're going to talk about it. But first, we should probably talk about Pelos, and I should kind of let you know who who he is. And I thought that I would also read you a little bit from primary source. You know, I love reading from primary source. Um, Sometimes there is primary source, sometimes there isn't. But it's interesting that with the men, particularly with Poseidon, Apollo, Zeus, there is documentation of their love affairs with men and, of course, with women. Um, but around the women, for example, like the Amazons, like Artemis, even Sappho, for example, um, there is innuendo and implication and assumption, but there isn't an actual story that says this female goddess or this poetess fell in love and was, you know, deeply passionately or made passionate love with this other nymph or girl or whatever. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I know we touched on it on the in the Amazon episode on how women around, especially women's sexuality in the ancient world was not something that ancient male writers focused on unless it had to do with uh, het sex or cis uh, sexuality or some type of um, digression, uh, you know, affairs or cheating or things like that. Uh, so today we're going to look at Poseidon and I hope that you'll enjoy learning about Poseidon and Pel Pel Pelops, Pelops as long as much as I've enjoyed um, looking them up. And I absolutely love this image. If you're listening to me on Spotify, that's fine. You could just Google Poseidon and Pelos anytime you, you remember to do that. Um, 
and you will find, especially fan art, fan art is amazing. And you will find a variety of fan art around these two. And it's absolutely adorable. So let's talk a little bit about Pelos. Uh, Pelos is Pelops. I'm sorry, I'm going to say that wrong a few times. Forgive me. Okay. Um, he is the grandson of Zeus and the son of Tantalus and Dion. Uh, Dion is the daughter of Atlas. Okay. Uh, so Pelos then it Pelops is then the great grandson of Kronos. Uh, certainly Pindar calls him the great uh, grandson of Kronos, uh, uh, though there is this kind of allusion to Pluto. So Pe Pelops, why, why, why can't I say this name? Uh, Pelops is really um, an interesting figure. And, you know, as I was reading more about him, I'm wondering if he was an actual king, a real king. So there is a history of him becoming a king and having descendants and all this kind of stuff later. Um, but, and this mystery around his shoulder, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But I'm wondering if the myth is sort of written backwards. That is, there was probably a king named Pelops that had the shoulder issue. And then this myth developed around this uh, story or this individual. And then that was passed down. So we'll see. We'll see what you think. But let's talk about creepy Tantalus first, because Tantalus is... I don't know, one of the most um, disturbing uh, fathers. You know, there is this long history, and I don't want to go out too long on a side rant, but there is this long history um, in Greece and in Greek tradition of father and son relationships that are antagonistic. And in, fa in fact, many fathers fear their son. And I think we've talked this in, pre I, I must have said this in previous episodes where um, the Kronos, for example, fears Zeus. And there's this, this idea that fathers are going to be replaced by their sons. And so that really uh, plays into the way that stories are told about fathers and sons. And that relationship tends to be antagonistic. Uh, there's, a, there's a territorial aspect to it. But very few fathers, there are a few, uh, but, but not that many that actually um, kill their children and use them as a tool uh, to try to manipulate the gods. So let me tell you the story about this Feast of Tantalus, which is, as you can see behind me, uh, this Feast of Tantalus. So Tantalus, he, who was a favorite of the gods, the gods really, really like him, decides one day to test the gods and see whether or not they could tell what they're eating. So, you know, people offered sacrifice to the gods. This is quite popular. And Tantalus decides, you know what? I'm going to create a meal for the gods and I'm going to see if they can tell what the heck they're eating. What possesses him to do this? Nobody knows. Um, so he decides to invite all the gods for dinner, an honor already, right? Like all the Olympians are coming for dinner. And he decides to slaughter his own son, Pelops and boil him, bleh, chop him up, boil him, and set him on the dinner table for the gods to eat to test whether or not the gods really taste, taste, I say in quotation marks, their meals or their sacrifices. And of course, right away, the Olympians know what it was and do not touch it. But Demeter, who is absorbed in her grief, um, at this time, she has lost Persephone. So she's come to dinner, but she's just so absorbed in her grief. 
she eats a piece of the meat. She eats some of the meat, okay? Um, sometimes people say this is Thetis, not Demeter, but most of the most of the ancient scholars agree that this is actually um, Demeter. And she eats the shoulder of Pelops, okay? Now, Zeus is so disturbed by this event that he throws Tantalus He's so angry. He orders Hermes to put uh, Pelops into a cauldron, uh, you know, take all the pieces of Pelops and put them away, put them into a, a cauldron, okay, and restore him to life. And then he decides to throw Tantalus into uh, the depths of the underworld where he will be um, tortured for the rest of his life, okay? So there's something really disturbing here about Tantalus um, and his plot. So what happens to poor Pelops? He's in the, his body pieces are all in this cauldron. Uh, and there's different people that are said. So uh, some scholars say that the Mori or the fates put Pelops back together. Some people say uh, that Hermes put them back together Um some like so there's a few people that say the gods. So many of the people, some people say Rhea restored Pelops and and Pan danced around in happiness. There's all these kind of stories of the restoration or the recreation. Um, but this is really a reanimation um of a human. So what happens is all of these gods get together and they put back together poor Pelops. And but because Demeter had ate his shoulder, and his shoulder is missing. <laughs> they decide to replace it with ivory. And so Pelops from now on has an ivory shoulder. And they say that all of his future descendants carry this kind of white mark on their shoulder, which is the mark of this ivory. So I thought I would read from you just briefly from Ovid. Ovid in his Metamorphosis writes about this recreation. And he says, um, Tantalus had dismembered the boy and the gods, so they say, reassembled the limbs. The rest was recovered and only the part which unites the neck with the upper arm. So the shoulder had been lost and a piece of ivory set into the empty space could serve the purpose as well. And Pelops was fully restored. So there is this recreation, fascinating recreation of Pelops from pieces. It, it, it very much, um, reminds me of the story of Osiris, for example, when Osiris is in pieces and Isis is looking for him and then she puts him back together. It's 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 very much resonant of that story of, of putting pieces of a dead body back together and breathing life into them. And this is exactly what the gods do to Pelops. Now, in this process, yeah, in this process, we learn that Poseidon falls in love, so in love with the beautiful boy, Pelops that he carries him off, okay, carries him off to Mount Olympus, and that for a time, for a long time, Pelops lives and stays with the gods in Mount Olympus and becomes Poseidon's lover. Now, there are different, so Pindar states that, Lucian states that, a couple of people state that in, in you know ancient scholars or primary texts, but one of my favorite parts is that there's a depiction of Poseidon creating a chariot um, that is um, uh, led or harnessed to a couple of Pegasus, Pegasus, Pegasuses, 
you know, horses with uh, wings that, uh, and it's this gold, beautiful chariot that takes Pelops up to Mount, that actually takes Pelops and Poseidon together. They ride off almost like they ride off into the sunset, but they're riding off up this mountain um, together and they spend an inordinate amount of time. You know, there's no real depiction of time up in Mount Olympus together, sort of sequestered in their rooms, making love and falling in love and all these kinds of things. Um, And then we learn, of course, that Pelops comes down from Mount Olympus. And uh, at some point, he ends up uh, in a contest with a man named Onemaus. And he's um, challenging Onemaus for um, his future wife, uh, Hippodamia, who is uh, who he wants to, who Pelops wants to marry. And there's a sort of battle back and forth. And um, Pelops defeats Onemaus in a chariot race, which is kind of interesting because he's taken up, he was taken up to Mount Olympus by his lover Poseidon uh, in a chariot. And now he becomes so skilled at charioting that he defeats, you know, some of the greatest charioteers of his time. And of course he ends up um, winning the hand of um, Hippodemia and Pelops ends up having uh, many other many children and descendants with, uh, with Hippodamia. Yeah. Um, he then goes with her and he, you know, he has lots of children with her and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the sons and the sons of Pelops himself with Hippodamia, um, become, um, entangled in some interesting story. So I'm going to read this from you. Um, so Chrysippus, who was the favorite of his father, of Pelops, one of his sons, rouses the envy of his brothers, who in concert with Hippodomia prevails upon the eldest, the two eldest among them, Atreus and Thaistis, to kill Chrysippus. They accomplished their crime and threw the body of their murdered brother into a well. Um, and there's a stories about who killed him, whether it's Atreus alone or Atreus and Thaistis. Either way, um, This continues the story, the the patricide lineage, uh, the you know the brother side lineage in Pelops's family, and so Pelops then ends up expelling his two sons for killing his one son, um, and all of this um, drama follows poor Pelops. In fact, one could argue, and then. He's very angry at his wife, Hippodamia, who he blames for not paying attention to the boys or even being uh, in cahoots with the boys to kill the oldest son. Anyway, she ends up running away and hiding in Olympia in a grove uh, called Altis. Um, And there's a statue to her, supposedly. So his whole family. So once he leaves Poseidon, so we are not sure how come he leaves Poseidon. But once he leaves Poseidon, Pelops has like a devastating life. Um, yes, he's a great charioteer. Yes, he has uh he wins the hand of the bride that he wants, and he has three sons. But again, the curse of patricide and homicide is in his family. And his whole life sort of crumbles after that. Um, although he's remembered well, historically speaking, um his life is not the same one could argue that he should have stayed with his lover Poseidon. Now, what about Poseidon? You ask, you know, where's Poseidon in this? What's fascinating to me is um, that I'm always torn about Poseidon because 
he can show some love and affection for some people that he favors, but he is also, you know, just like uh, Zeus and just like many of his, you know, his other brothers and sisters, except Hades, who actually is quite um, subdued compared to his other brothers. Um, Poseidon does rape Medusa. Uh, Poseidon fights and loses to Athena over Athens. Uh, Poseidon has some issues that are unlikable. But interestingly, for the purpose of our episode today, he is a man who loves both men and women. And of his lovers, Pelops is his mm, most favorite, most mm, dedicated uh, lover. And the reason why we say this, the reason why we know this is because we are told that he takes this lover to Mount Olympus. Now, of the women that he seduces uh, throughout his mythology, he never takes any of them uh, to Mount Olympus. In fact, he never takes anyone else to Mount Olympus. And so we know that Pelops is a key lover for Poseidon. Um, the only thing that we are not as aware of is why Pelops leaves or how he can leave Mount Olympus and how he ends up leaving Poseidon. But that being said, much of the story about Pelops is about sort of his heroic deeds and his tragic life. And I would say that ancient scholars and early classicists did not make a very big deal about the fact that Pelops is the one and only and favorite lover of Poseidon. So I'm here to do it for them. <laughs> I'm here to, to, to ring out, you know, all of the, um, all of the gayness around Poseidon um, and, and his lover. And so in popular culture, we often see Poseidon depicted in this uber masculine um, way. And that's, you know, that's perfectly fine. Um, but we we lean very heavily on this uber masculinity equaling cis-heteronormativity. And perhaps for some of you, it would be interesting to learn that someone that you might see as cis-heteronormative um, and sort of the epitome of masculine or machismo um, is a lover of men. I mean, I don't think anyone should be surprised because as I've said earlier in the last episode, uh, Greek men, and I mean, I just want to be honest, but all men, yes, I said all men, um, in the ancient world have ancestors, I'm trying to see how I can frame this, have ancestors that at some point were the lovers of men. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is a broad and impactful statement, perhaps, but um, one that I think can be supported by history in the sense that all over the globe, in every culture, if you dig back enough or far enough or in the military or during wartime or wherever you want to dig, Across the world, geographically speaking and culturally speaking, you will find men who love men in every single culture. And especially if we dig back before um, the limitations of monotheistic religion, the limitations of machismo patriarchy, 
um, the limitations of toxic masculinity. There have always been men who love men, always. So yes, I'm saying that. Yes, you may disagree. I mean, it's history. It's not written in stone. Ha ha ha. Um, technically, it was written in stone at some point. But uh, one of my favorites that I'm going to do at I'm going to do this uh, month that is not in Greece is going to be uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu because sorry I just kind of went to Gilgamesh and Enkidu because the story of Gilgamesh is written in stone. And uh, Gilgamesh and Kidu are very clearly lovers. Um, and so since the beginning of time, people, people have loved people in a variety and diverse and inclusive and fluid way. Okay. <laughs> and so those stories may have been hidden or those stories may have ignored. For example, I'm not sure how many people know that Poseidon is gay. I say this in quotation marks because the Greeks wouldn't have used the word gay. Uh, but I don't know how many people are aware that Poseidon enjoyed the wiles of his lover, uh, his male lover. But it would not it would not have been surprising or shocking or even anything for the ancient Greeks or for anyone in the ancient world. Um, particularly for God, because that would have been a dominant submissive relationship. And Greek men in particular had very strong rules around dominant and submissive relationships. So uh, for example, or they had rules around the penetrator and the penetrate E. Um, and so there was this kind of mm, a relationship of power and so, for example, if a man was wealthy or if a man was older uh, and he took a young lover, usually he would be the dominant while the young lover would be so usually. And I mean, we're not in everyone's bedrooms and certainly the ancient historians were not in everyone's bedroom. But the idea was that the the dominant partner and, I'm, and I don't mean this in a mean or unloving way. It was very, you know, I mean, every relationship is different, but the dominant partner would have rewarded the submissive partner with wealth, with love, with uh, status, with et cetera, yeah? Um, in the same way, you could argue that Poseidon offers Pelops this stunningly gold chariot with these two Pegasuses and then sort of makes him this brilliant charioteer and takes him out to Mount Olympus. Um, and so there is this... this um, this relationship that is a bit about power here and it is about about position and the greeks really cared about that that was very important to them um and so their male to male relationships were not always egalitarian in fact i would say they were almost never egalitarian there was always uh, a bit of a power struggle or a power establishment in the relationship and it was the, this the, the power relationship was complementary to both. That is, both members um, entered into the relationship willingly and understanding their position. But there is quite a bit of talk around <clears throat> who is the dominant and who is the submissive. <coughs> Excuse me. So for Poseidon and Pelops, it's no surprise that it follows. I mean, the, the stories don't have to actually outright say it because that would have been understood. But there is this very clear um, line of power. Now, again, 
you know, this is uh, not something that needs to be duplicated in our modern world in the sense that um, it doesn't define um, gay or queer relationships at all or fluid relationships at all. It doesn't have to define it. It doesn't have to shape it. But it's just an interesting way that the Greeks viewed these relationships in the ancient world. Uh, today, we see Poseidon represented in a very cis way. And I've given you some examples here of Poseidon in a Percy Jackson stories. Well, you can always identify Poseidon because he's got the trident in his hand. And Poseidon in Clash of the Titans looks like an old uh, cis man. Uh, and it's implied that he's an old cis man uh, holding the trident. And we even have uh, some associations between Jason Momoa's Aquaman and this sort of mucho machismo, right? Uh, which implies cis normativity, but doesn't always uh, mean cis normativity in the sense that I think that there is in our society at large, especially for maybe people who are not in the LGBTQ2 plus uh, world or, or have contact with anyone that identifies um, in that way, I think that there is, and so I mean more like Hollywood and sort of stereotypical cis normativity or representation. I think that people assume that, and you know, I hate to say this in 2023, like I really hate to say this, but I've had some conversations even with friends or acquaintances, even this past Pride Month, where people will say something like, I don't have anything against gay people. I don't have anything against gay men, but I don't like the flamboyant ones. And I'm shocked and automatically in active mode, you know, activist mode. Um, as a member of the community and as an ally, you know, to gay men, um, it just, it irks me so much um, this, that, that it's 2023 and, Perhaps I'm going to blame Hollywood, but it's the perception that masculine men are not gay, right? That, or, or the perception that cis men must not be feminine, right? Even that perception is problematic. And um, yeah, it just annoys me. Sorry, I'm going on a rant. It just annoys me that we're still there. And these images, for example, of Poseidon re are trying to reinforce this idea that here is a God that is very cis and very, very heteronormative and uh, very masculine and blah, blah, blah. No way, no way could he have been uh, a gay. And I say that in qu quotation marks again, because in Greece, they wouldn't have had that word. But yeah, yeah, he is. Um, yeah, yeah, he is. And, and publicly so and unapologetically so. And nobody gives a shit. I dare you to tell Poseidon he can't have a male lover, you know? And so... Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I think that there is so much in, in ancient lore and ancient storytelling that would be so wonderful if it was done. But you know what? I, I'll tell you this. If we had, I, I would bet that if we had a story of Poseidon and Pelos and their love story and Netflix decides to make one, I can bet you that a percentage of the population will watch the story and go, oh my God. Now they're making everything gay because that's the other thing I've heard this Pride Month and other times that really annoys me as well. And my answer to that is it's always been gay, honey. Like always. It's always been there. 
It was there 3000 years ago. You know, it's just that you don't know, it, you know? And so that's my, you know, that's my service. That's my, um, that's what I'm doing here, friends, especially this month is that I am bringing what is already there. You know, nobody edited, nobody rewrote it. It's already there. It's just many people don't talk about it. Many people don't know about it. And it's not something that's often discussed. For example, when we talk about Poseidon. But I am here to uh, peel back a little bit of those layers, especially for those of you listening to me and um, and read to you like I did from primary source so that you know that these stories are part of the culture of the ancient Greeks and wonderfully so. Uh, that is, these stories are not banned and they're not, like I said, very unapologetic. So no one would have blinked an eye. No one. No one would blink an eye if any of the Olympian gods or like I said, Gilgamesh and Enkidu and others, if any of their gods have, let's say, same sex love lovers or same gender lovers, no one would have blinked an eye. And it's time that we it's time that we get there. It's time that we tell stories in which there are cis people and non-cis people and fluid people and all kinds of people. And we can tell stories and no one blinks an eye. That's my goal. Um, that's my hope. Um, and so I hope that by telling on Poseidon and telling this story about Poseidon, I hope that that was kind of fun for you and maybe something new or not. Maybe you already knew the story and you just wanted to hear me tell it. Um, and feel free to, to Google any of that stuff and look up any of that stuff. And um, I hope that you've enjoyed this uh, short episode on the gay gods of Greece. And remember that while it is Pride Month this month, Pride is every day. I'll talk to you guys next time when we'll look at Artemis and then Zeus.